Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. A few weeks ago on this podcast, we had interviewed Gautam Menon, professor of physics and biology at Ashoka University, about mathematical modeling for infectious diseases. In that first interview with Professor Menon, we attempted to demystify the ways in which some of this modeling works, the assumptions and parameters taken into account. We discussed the mathematical models that had been in circulation in the public domain about India that I think it's safe to say haven't quite given us an accurate picture about the growth of COVID-19, the spread of the disease in India. We also discussed how for a country like India, given its size and complexity, we probably need to work toward modelling for individual states, individual districts even, rather than try and project country-wide figures. In collaboration with other Indian scientists, Dr. Menon was leading one such effort to come up with a mathematical model that could be more accessible and that could give us this more granular, more local detail. This is the subject of our podcast today. The interview is done by my colleague Shubhashree Desikan. And before I hand over to let Dr. Menon talk through the model and explain it, I'll repeat once again that at the juncture that we find ourselves in now, wondering what might happen if the lockdown is lifted, how the disease might spread, if we will need a future lockdown, possibly many future lockdowns, mathematical models are one of the key ways in which we can attempt to create policy and chart a way forward. So here's Shubhashri Desikan in conversation with Gautam Menon. Hi, Gautam Menon. Welcome to the Hindus In Focus podcast. Welcome back, in fact. Thank you so much for making time for us today. It's a lot of fun to talk to you always with uh, models. Your recent interest in epidemiology is good to think about. So uh, I'd like to talk to you about this uh, recent uh, model that you've developed, epidemiological model, Incisim, which you and your collaborators have built up. First, can you tell me about the collaboration, how many scientists are involved and how you managed during the lockdown to collaborate and how long it took you to do this and so on? Our work comes very broadly under this organization called the Indian Scientist Response to COVID-19. This is a voluntary organization which has about 500 scientists and writers and people interested in science popularization from all over the country. And this is really an organization of people who wanted to make sure that communication regarding COVID-19 and resources, especially scientific resources regarding COVID-19, were freely accessible and available to the public. So as part of that, we also organized a modeling group, a group of people interested in modeling the epidemic, and we tried to ask this question, where would our efforts be most best targeted? What we came up with was the idea of having a model that could describe the spread of the epidemic in India that was detailed and careful enough that it could be used as a tool for policy prediction and that governments at the state level or even at the national level could decide in what way they should be planning for the days ahead in terms of what had gone on in the past. So it's a model that is predicated on what's gone on in the past in terms of the number of cases, but then tries to predict further what might happen over the next week or 10 days or two weeks or three weeks. So that way, it's a very useful guide to policy. So the group that put this together was a sort of large group, the group of three people from the 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 Savitribai Pune University in Pune, 
then IMSC Chennai had three people. I'm associated both with IMSC Chennai as well as with Ashoka University. Just to give you the names, Nehal Shekhatkar, Bhajandra Pujari, and Mayor Arjun Wadkar are all from based in Pune. Dheeraj Hazra, Pinaki Chaudhary, Shitabha Sinha are all at IMSC Chennai. I am at Ashoka University, Dr. Menon, Anupama Sharma at Bits Goa, and Vishwesha Guttar at ISC Bangalore. These were the people, nine people who came together to put this model together. And now this model that we worked on very intensely for a period of several weeks is now available to the public. So we have something on the, on the inside cop site, which describes the model in detail. And we also have a tool that anyone can use online to put in their numbers and see what happens to the epidemic, what they would predict for the epidemic. I did uh, look at the uh, post on the Insaicov uh, website, and in, in that you say that uh, Insaicom is the first detailed state-specific model to study COVID-19. Uh, what do you mean by state-specific? So what we can what we can do is essentially model all 28 states and additional union territories in terms of the population in each state, in terms of the number of cases in that state at that particular time, and come up with a prediction for how that number of cases will increase. So in that sense, it is state-specific, and it takes in information about each of those states and asks separately, how does the epidemic spread within that state? We can also now account for people moving from state to state. Of course, now under a lockdown situation, there is no interstate movement. But you can understand in a longer time, when we do, we'll have people returning to normal at least a little bit and some opening up of the ability to move between state and state. You can imagine situations where someone who was infected but didn't know it went to another state. And then we can understand what might happen to the epidemic and where we can actually put in numbers appropriate to each state, each, each state and ask what are the predictions for that particular state. Many models have been produced in the past which look at India-wide predictions. But these are less useful because every state has responded differently to the epidemic. Some states have been more successful than other states. What we would be really useful would be to have predictions that are valid at the state level. In fact, even at the level below the state, at the level of districts, zones, cities, and so on. And we hope to be getting there in some sense. That's uh, really interesting. You also say that it's a nine-compartment model. So can you describe the technical aspect of that? Yeah, I won't go into too much detail, but let me just explain that these mathematical models for, for, for infectious diseases assume that you can put people into a bunch of what are called compartments. So the simplest model says there's a susceptible compartment for people who have not fallen ill. There's an infected compartment for people who are currently fallen into the disease. And there is a recovered compartment for people who have recovered from the disease. And you can add more compartments. For example, the recovered compartment could be recovered and people who are dead, for example, if the disease is a fatal one. You could add an exposed compartment in between the susceptible and the infected compartment for people who have been exposed to the disease but have not become infected yet. So all of these complications can be added to a very simple model in order to represent a particular disease somewhat better. In this model, we have a fairly complicated sequence of different states in the model. It has currently a susceptible state, an exposed state, an asymptomatic state. So that's unusual and very specific to thinking about COVID-19. A fair number of patients of COVID-19 are those who will show symptoms only very briefly, if not at all. However, they still continue to remain infectious. The level of virus inside them will remain, will be as high as, as the level of virus in people who are actually showing symptoms. So there is a pre, an asymptomatic case, there's a pre-symptomatic case, and the pre-symptomatic patients will go either into being severely ill or being mildly ill. The patients who go into being severely ill will have to be taken to the hospital. From there, they can either recover, some of them may die. 
you can understand that this builds in a fair amount of complexity into the description of these different states. And in a sense, this tracks the different trajectories that patients might have as they move through these different stages of illness. Some will recover, some will be to be hospitalized, some will be hospitalized and then will die. Some of them will not show symptoms at all. So the complexity of this model ensures that we capture the details of the disease in an adequate manner. So is it specific to COVID-19 or can it be used for other diseases as well? Several diseases are simpler than COVID-19. A number of diseases don't have, for example, uh, an asymptomatic compartment. So usually the model that one would choose would be a susceptible, exposed, infected, and recovered. That's really one of the simpler models that you can use. If you talk about vector-borne diseases, it gets more complicated because these are diseases that are transmitted by mosquitoes, which are the typical vector that you might have, for example, dengue or malaria. And then you must write down compartments that represent the parasite in the mosquito as well as the parasite in the human being. So that adds an additional level of complication. This model is general enough that it is applicable to a large number of diseases. And you know, you could at most you could think of dropping a compartment or adding one or two compartments depending upon the specific disease. But again, it's a reminder that you should tailor a model to a particular disease and then work with that. Uh, there have been several uh, people modeling uh, COVID-19 and uh, results have come out. Would you say that uh, your model has a, a complexity that's greater than the others or uh, is it better in any sense? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it is better in the sense that it has more complexity and is more faithful to the to the details of the disease. For example, the ability to include asymptomatic transmission, people who are asymptomatically infected with the illness, is something that is known to be very important for COVID-19. But earlier models don't read that particularly seriously. They just assume that if you're infected, you're infected, you can transmit the disease to other people. But the exact role of the asymptomatic is something that we emphasize in our particular model. And also the ability to track which patients will go to hospital, what factors of them will not go to hospital, will be mildly infected, etc., gives us a certain power to put in interventions in the model that might more accurately represent the interventions that a government might choose to impose or a public health system might choose to impose. You say with this model you can compare interventions of different kinds. Uh, what, can you give an example of what you mean by this? So one example would be if you chose to quarantine only those people who showed symptoms, only the symptomatic patients, that would be one way of dealing with the disease. If you chose to test people at a large scale, then you would pull in people who are also asymptomatic for the disease or pre-symptomatic or even exposed in the sense of being infected, but, but having some level of virus inside their body. So depending the, the, the model lends itself to many different types of interventions that are specific. So you can choose who to intervene with, which part of the population to intervene with, when to intervene. You can choose to step your testing up from low values to high values over a specific period of time. And the model will tell you what the effects of that are. We'll explain that. You've also talked about different kinds of lockdown. So uh, we have seen one kind of lockdown uh, so far. So what are the other kinds of lockdown that you're talking about here? So the types of lockdown that you look at is one is the standard lockdown where you just you know, make a population not go out for a certain period of weeks and then allow them you relax that. But you can also think of lockdowns that are imposed periodically. You have a lockdown, you have a relaxation, you have a lockdown, a relaxation, etc. So that prevents the disease from going out of control. Because every time you every time you spend five days and the disease builds up in the population, because many more people are contacting each other, you can choose to impose the lockdown again. So that sort of on-off, on-off or periodic lockdown is something that we can study within our model. 
The other thing that we can study within our model is imposing the lockdown when, for example, the number of hospitalized cases crosses a certain limit. Once, if your capacity in terms of hospital beds is, let us say, 1,000 or 5,000 beds, you can say that once the, the demand for that exceeds 2,500 or 3,000, then I will impose the lockdown again just to ensure that my numbers of hospital beds are not saturated and I will not want for more beds. So that would be called a light switch lockdown. So that's again something that we can study within our model. Can you use your model to help manage the disease itself? Can you explain how you can do that if you can? So management is more of a, of a sort of clinical option that you do. What we can do is estimate how many people are, will require hospitalization or from there what fraction of those might require an ICU, might require a ventilator. So all of these approximations go into making those particular statements. But we do will be able to provide that specific idea. So in that sense, the ability to manage an ICU load or a hospital load is something that we can predict within the formulation of our model. That's certainly something that we can do. As numbers change, as we realize, as we understand more about what is the relative fraction of asymptomatics to symptomatic, what is the typical trajectory, what is what happens to people with pre-existing conditions? So, for example, now it's known that the disease affects older people more than it does younger people. But it also affects younger people with pre-existing conditions, for example, like diabetes or cardiovascular disease. We can put that into the model in terms of a propensity of certain groups of people, certain age groups to fall more sick than others, and expand the scope of the model to say that these are the people who clinically are more likely to have a more severe manifestation of the illness, and therefore their hospital system is engaged to dealing with that. How did you get the data to uh, model your disease? What are the parameters that you need and where did you source them from? So some of these parameters, in fact, a good number of these parameters are taken from the experience of the disease outside India, across Wuhan, across the, across the US, across Italy, France, etc. So certainly the progression of the disease in terms of what fraction is asymptomatic, what fraction will be severe, what fraction will need to be hospitalized, etc. These are properties of the disease itself. They have less to do with, with, sort of with, with other social contexts. They're really properties of the disease that any patient will actually undergo. What we have, uh, the crucial aspect of the disease here is something called the reproductive ratio. And to explain that very quickly for your listeners, if the question is how many people does one infected person infect on average? So suppose as a simple example, I as an infected person infected two more people. Those two would want to, inf to infect two more people, making four. Four would become eight, eight would become 16, and that's a number that seems to grow very fast. That's called a reproductive ratio, the average number of people that one infected person infects in a wholly susceptible population. What we do is choose a reproductive ratio that we think is appropriate for the Indian population, and we use that to run our simulations together with estimates based on current case numbers of what the number of asymptomatic cases might be, what the number of, of exposed cases might be. And then we look at a whole range of those parameters and then see what our simulation predicts. So always, because of the inherent uncertainties with these numbers, we will always only be able to predict a range, and that range can be fairly large. But still, even with that, it's useful to policymakers and to people who, for example, are worried about public health in order to make plans for the future. So as I said, there are some particular numbers that are peculiar to India, that are special to India. For example, the reproductive ratio enters our model, and that can even be vary from district to district, state to state, different country to country, because that relies on not only the properties of the disease, but on the properties of how people contact each other, what is the likelihood that one person transmits the disease to another person. And for this, there may be country-specific or region-specific factors that come in. 
So we deal with the best numbers that we have at the moment, and we are further trying to refine those so that we can really work with very granular, granular information right at the district level to get better and better estimates of what these quantities ought to be. So let me try to understand this. Uh, in the case of a lockdown, this reproductive uh, ratio would be uh, different from when there is no lockdown, for instance, right? Exactly. So, so in a lockdown, you sort of assume that the disease cannot propagate any further because you've just reduced vastly the number, ability of people to go and meet other people and transfer the disease by encouraging them to stay at home, by mandating that they stay at home. So then the question is, in the absence of the lockdown, what is that number? If you put in physical distancing between people, what is that number? How do we account for this in any sensible model? So that's what the model tries to do. It imposes a value when, when you are locked down, which ensures that the disease does not spread. It chooses another value that seems reasonable when you expand the lockdown situation to when you relax it in some way. So the, all the pointers that we have right now is that one has to continue physical distancing for potentially a long period if you want to keep the disease under control, even after potentially the lockdown is can you give some numbers to illustrate this? Um, so the, the, the reproductive ratio that is associated with the disease from what we know earlier, from earlier work in China and the US is a number like 2.2 to 2.4. That means roughly a little more than two people are infected every time there is one infected person who transfers the disease to people around them. If So in our simulations, we begin with that number, but then we reduce it to a number that is 1.8 or 1.7 to account for the fact of distancing. And if you have a situation where you have a lockdown, that number is reduced below one. Any reproductive ratio below one is represents a disease that dies out over some time. The problem, of course, is that the time is usually very, very large. So it's not feasible to keep people locked down for months on end if one was to actually do that. And you must accompany this by identifying cases, taking them out to the community, and making sure that they recover before they have a chance to infect anybody. So what we are looking at is combinations of allowing a relaxation of the lockdown, retaining some aspects of physical distancing, but also testing very importantly, allowing testing to be applied to larger and larger numbers in the population so that we know what fraction of the population has fallen ill at some point. We know what is the fraction of recovered people in, in, in the population, as well as we know what is the fraction of active cases in the population. That will really help us understand where the trajectory of the epidemic is actually going. Would you like to hazard a guess as to how long uh, this disease can, uh, needs to be managed before uh, either uh, either we reach our herd immunity levels or whether a vaccine, vaccine is found out? Can you hazard that, a guess? That, that's a hard question. I think the best answer that we have so far is that the disease will not go away right very soon. It may be reduced a little in terms of the numbers of cases, but then one expects a second wave where it will go up again, maybe even a third wave over the next six to eight to months to a year maybe more. The fastest one can even hope to get a vaccine in place is at least a, between a year and a year and a half, maybe even two years. And after that, if the ability to get the vaccine to a mass market, be able to produce it in large enough quantities and reach it to every corner of India, is another huge effort which we have to plan for in the future. So it, the disease is unlikely to go away in the summer and then always stay away. It may go away for a little bit of time, but then it will recur again. And we have to be prepared for that. We have to understand the importance of distancing in order to reduce the reproductive number of the epidemic to a manageable value. Always the question is with an epidemic to make sure that it doesn't spiral out of control, to make sure that the number of cases don't overwhelm the ability of hospitals to deal with them. That's what our main aim should be, to ensure that we have 
sensible social distancing norms, sensible physical distancing norms, always in place that we reduce opportunities for large groups of people to congregate together, whether in temple festivals, whether in weddings, whether in churches, all of these together. We have to decide as a society that it is sensible to pursue a certain course of action. That course of action will involve inevitably not having large numbers of people together. It will involve controlling the numbers who go to market, spreading it out during the day. And we'll have to decide how we're going to actually do this in the future. It's very important for us. Uh, it's a really remarkable effort, certainly. And uh, thank you so much, Gautam, for giving us this inter interesting insight into the model and uh, epidemiology, how it works and uh, the whole works. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shiva. Thank you for allowing me on your program.